it is an imperative. It is empirically true for all of us. It's the nature of life. Everyone will encounter some trauma, some suffering. The question is, what do you do with that suffering? And the Christian worldview has a solution. So I just needed to know, is it true? And once I discovered it was true, that changed everything. Hey, well, welcome to the Decision Point Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Hobson, president of Decision Point, where our mission is to proclaim the gospel to the next generation till every student has heard. And hey, if you're just tuning in, this podcast is designed to energize and equip a generation of young leaders to stand for Christ, live for Christ, witness for Christ, and endure hardship for his name because Jesus is worth it. And as we think about standing for Christ today, we believe as Christians, we need to be people who will stand on the rock of Christ and his word. And of course, we believe the Bible is true. We believe it's inspired. We believe every word of it is true and from God and without error. And at the same time, we know that some people watching may not be sure if they're ready to follow Jesus. Maybe they're they're hearing about Jesus from one of their friends uh, on campus, and they're not sure they're ready to make the commitment to trust the Bible. Maybe they hear all these myths out there about why the Bible isn't trustworthy. And we know others tuning in may actually be a follower of Jesus. Maybe they're even leading outreach at their schools, but they're kind of they're encountering some tough questions about the Bible. Maybe it's from their own uh, critical thinking. God's given them a sound mind, and they're asking some good questions about how do we know we can trust the Bible? Or maybe they're getting hit with some tough questions from their teachers or their peers. Whoever it is, we want to help people in today's episode know that we can have confidence that the Bible is reliable and that it's trustworthy. And we believe there's so many good reasons that we have for that. I mean, first and foremost, that God is no dummy and he knows how to speak to us in a way that his people will know that it's him speaking to us. Uh, But we also believe that as we look closely at the Bible and we think hard about the Bible, uh, God's given us so many good evidences that it is indeed reliable, trustworthy, and ultimately inspired by him and therefore without error. And to help us with that, we guys, we have just the huge, uh, exciting privilege of having Detective J. Warner Wallace, uh, author of Cold Case Christianity, with us on the show. Jim, welcome to the show today. Hey, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. Man, thanks for being on here. I should say Detective Wallace, thank you for the show. Uh, help us, for anybody who's not familiar with you and your life's work, tell us about your the day job that you held for several decades. Well, I mean, I was um, kind of born into a law enforcement family. My dad was a detective for years before I was. And then when I came on the job, there were um, opportunities for me to look at some of the cases that he had worked. And I remember those cases as a kid. So uh, you work your way up from patrol to SWAT and gangs, and then you finally, I finally end up in an investigative position. And I started opening up uh, my dad's old cases. There was two that I was uh, really interested in, one in particular. So I opened it up pretty early and started looking at it. And those cases, when they are closed, I've worked murders. So those are those are the highest level of crime. They don't close by statute. So in other words, if you don't solve a murder case in 30 years, you can reopen it and start working it again. So I had the privilege of being able to do that for my agency. Now, look, when I first became a Christian, uh, it was about 35. And I had been a, like a senior investigator maybe maybe a year or two. And uh, so I'd already done tons of interviews. I must talk to hundreds and hundreds of witnesses. And when I first walked into a church and someone said, this was allegedly an account of an ancient man who lived and preached and died on a cross and then it will yeah, rose from the grave. 
And these are the accounts where people who saw this stuff recorded this. I thought, first of all, how can I even trust this as an eyewitness account? And if it was, I knew how to test eyewitnesses. So for me, it wasn't like I was trying to prove anyone wrong, although I was a pretty opposed, I was opposed to Christianity in the sense that I thought it was a foolish uh, fantasy. So why don't, why would you be, look, all of us who are, you're listening right now, if Christianity is worth your life, if you want to be devoted to someone like Jesus of Nazareth, you need to know two things. Number one, is it true? Number two, is it good? But I'm going to tell you, if it's not true, how can it, it doesn't really even good? matter? How, yeah, does it matter? That's the foundation of good. So I think for us, I just needed to know, was it true? And I had a skill set in place that I could apply to the gospel accounts. So I just applied that detective uh, skill set, looking at it from the perspective of eyewitness reliability. It was years later that uh, Sean McDowell, who's also a Christian casemaker, he 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 suggested I should write a book about this because I was training his high schoolers to defend their beliefs at the campus of University of California at Berkeley. And we would take these trips up there to Berkeley. And, and Sean and I were on a trip and he said, you know, you should teach this. You should be teaching it for so long. You should write a book about it. Never thought I would, but that's what became cold case Christianity. So in that book, look what I'm here to tell you, if you applied those 10 principles that I, the tools that I give you in the book to be a detective and you applied them to the New Testament, that's all I did. And I found them to be persuasive. Then I was stuck with these accounts that that described, I thought, accurately based on those tests that I gave them, this man who rose from the grave and claimed to be God. Uh, that changed, changes things. So for me, I, I was all out before I did the investigation. But once I did the investigation, I had to make a choice. You're either all out. I get that. I respect that. Or you're all in. What you cannot respect are people who are half in and half out. So I think in the end, especially, I love the way you started by saying that we're going we're gonna to have trouble in this life. Jesus told us we would, and we're already seeing it, that Christianity is less and less less and less uh, uh, acceptable. I mean, it's come under attack by every angle. So you're going, if you're going to hold this view, and forget about this view, if you just live as a non-Christian, you're going to encounter suffering. It is an imperative. It is empirically true for all of us. It's the nature of life. Everyone will encounter some trauma, some suffering. The question is, what do you do with that suffering? And the Christian worldview has a solution. So I just needed to know, is it true? And once I discovered it was true, that changed everything. That's amazing. Well, I love how you said on the, it, it can't be just kind of important. You had this great quote on your book, I think on like page 21 from C.S. Lewis, that Christianity is a statement which if false is of no importance, but if true is of infinite importance, the one thing it cannot be is moderately important. And I, I think that's a great uh, comment there. Um, Jim, I want to ask you, okay, so you were a detective, you were a cold case homicide detective. So you just, before we get a little bit more into your apologetic content, help students get a sense for, I mean, how, I mean, cool that is. And even the, I mean, what they may not know is you were able to solve cases where, uh, the, if I got it right, the person who committed the crime had already died and the eyewitnesses had already died and or maybe the detective who took the initial report had already died. Am I getting that right? Is that what a cold case homicide detective does? Yeah, sometimes it's, it, you know, if you, anything that's cold, that in other words, when it's cold is when the initial investigator who's assigned the case is no longer working the case. He okay. will suspend it because he's run out of leads. It's done. That could be a year or take five years. 
So some of my cases were maybe 15 years old. A lot of my cases were 30-ish, 25-ish years ago. And in that situation, people who used to be around who saw the thing, they're dead. The people who took the reports, the officers who wrote the supplemental reports recording what the eyewitnesses saw, they're often dead. So now you've got reports in which you have no access to the report writer or to the reporter. Well, that's the Gospels. I don't have access to the people who saw the stuff that's reported by the gospel authors. I don't have access to the gospel authors. Well, that's not uncommon if you're working cold cases, and that's why that approach. And and, and I'll be honest, uh, I, I was not assigned officially to the cold case team when I became a Christian. I was simply opening and going through my dad's old murder cases because I thought, you know, I'd love to be able to solve one of these. And, I, and we did, but it took a while. Um, but the point is, that's the a skill set that cold case detectives could. And by the way, that's not unusual from what historians are also trying to do. But here's the great thing about cold case detectives is we get to test it in front of a jury when we're done. Historians don't get to do that. So we get to see, well, what, what actually works in terms of reasoning, what actually works in terms of communication. You get to see both sides of that. So courtrooms end up being a laboratory a history laboratory every time they try a cold case. That's, a, that's an amazing skill set you've got. So, okay, you, you're you a homicide detective. You weren't actually a believer. You said you were actually somewhat, I mean, is it hostile to Christianity in your mind or just thought it really wasn't true? Uh, but what was it about the Gospels as you started reading the Bible that made you think, okay, maybe, maybe this might actually be true? Or what were some, just some of the things that first grabbed your attention that made you think, I, I need to actually dig deeper here? Well, if you're a young person and you've had someone challenge you online or challenge you at, just personally, and they'll say something like, well, you know, the, the Gospels are got all these contradictions and they're different. And they say, this one says this and one says that. How can they be true with this much difference between the, the descriptions? I've even had people be challenged to say, hey, just read this account and you'll see the different ways that this ends up um, you know, uh, being different. And that should challenge your, your beliefs because there are so many differences between the Gospels. Well, just the opposite occurred for me because I had worked so many witnesses by this time that I knew that if it happened an hour ago, when I get there, unless they haven't been set, look, the first thing that detectives do when they get that call from the dispatch, hey, we got a murder at the corner of First and Main. As we're going to say, okay, I got one request. Here's one. It's going to take me an hour to get there. I got it in the middle of the night. I got to get dressed. I got to drive in. I have one request, have the officers on the scene separate the eyewitnesses. Because if you don't separate the eyewitnesses, they'll end up telling you the same thing. But true eyewitness testimony is sometimes remarkably different to the point where you're like going, how can that be true? How can this, all these people just saw it an hour ago. I got five people who saw this an hour ago. They have been separated. And now when you're interviewing them, you're like, are we even talking about the same crime here? That's not uncommon. And so to me, that's the sign that you've got good eyewitness testimony because everyone's personal perspective, not just where they are in the room, what their personal history is that they walk into the room with. What do they like? What do they dislike? What do they focus on typically, even if there's no crime occurring? We all talk to people. We focus on different things. Some people will be better describing what happened with the action part of it or what kind of gun it was, or some people will be better at what they were wearing, or that they had a certain kind of inflection or a certain kind of, uh, of dialogue. I mean, it's, it's who you are and what your skill set is. It contributes. Now, by the way, if you are noticing one aspect of the crime, you often are missing the other aspects. And that's why you need a bunch of witnesses to put the puzzle together. I do not want 
You guys try to figure that out as witnesses. It's okay if it seems to be contradictory when you first tell it to me. I will piece it together to get the entire robust story. When I saw that the Gospels were different and had subtle differences, oh, how many women are at the tomb? How many angels are at the tomb? What does a sign over Jesus' head say precisely? These things seem like they're contradictions. No, they're not. They can be reconciled. And this is exactly what you would expect in eyewitness testimony. So for me, that's what kind of piqued my interest. I, the only reason why I went and, and dug into the scriptures as deeply as I did was because I first saw they had those, um, those variants. And those variants end up being a hallmark of reliable eyewitness testimony. I just thought, let me just test it and see if it actually is eyewitness testimony. And that's how the whole thing started for me. So you got uh, a lot of material in your book about how to help people think like a detective. I wanted to have you uh, see if you could just start to give our young people, I mean, if it's okay, um, I mean, can you give us a little bit of a police academy training today for young people? I mean, I've, I've promised students if they tune in to this episode, uh, we're going to be giving out badges. Is that cool with you? Yeah, no, we have a, we actually have a, a kids academy for eight to 12 year olds, right? Because I think this is something when I was a kid, I used to read Hardy Boys and Hardy Boys one time, these were two brothers who were detectives. And then at one point they released a book that was like a detective manual. Oh my gosh, I couldn't wait to get that book because I just wanted to see like, what what is it to be a detective? Well, let me try to give you a couple skills that'll help you. you know, like there's, there's 10 chapters. Yeah. The first 10 chapters of this book are 10 tools. And that can be overwhelming. I'm not going to try to cover all 10 of those tools. That's why we write books. But I will tell you this. There's a couple of things you can do to start thinking like a detective. First of all, understand the categories of evidence. Because people will say, well, you have no hard evidence for Christianity. Well, that's true. It's true because there's no category called hard evidence. There's no hard evidence for anything on any criminal case either. There's only two categories of evidence. And hard and soft are not the categories. The categories are direct and indirect. And what that means is direct evidence is just one kind of evidence. It's eyewitness testimony. Everything else is indirect. So DNA, that's indirect evidence. Fingerprints, indirect. Blood spatter, indirect. Uh, gunshot residue, indirect. Um, all this stuff is, if it's not an eyewitness statement, it's indirect. Now, the other thing I want to say is, eyewitnesses have eyes and they tell a story. Your camera has eyes and tells a story too. So if you've got a video, uh, that would be considered direct evidence. And everything else, though, is indirect. And what counts as evidence? Everything. Small stuff? Yeah. Everything in the crime scene counts as evidence. Everything. And everything that should have been in the crime scene but is missing uh, counts as evidence, too. Everything he says, that's going to be evidential. Everything he could have said but failed to say, mm, that's going to be evidential, too. In other words, you solve cold cases by opening up what qualifies as evidence and then describing that to a jury. Maybe the first detective didn't even see that that could be evidential. So this is the same as true for making the case for Christianity. The way words are used in the New Testament is evidence. The way words could have been used but weren't is evidence. What's described in the uh, account is evidence. What is not described in a sequence where you would think it would be described, that's evidence too. In other words, I want you to open your mind to see that there's lots of evidence that you could use to make a case that you may not have been thinking or considering was evidence before. And there's only two categories. And we can make evidence, make a case rather, with both direct and indirect. And by the way, those two forms of evidence, juries are instructed in the state of California by the judge that those two forms of evidence are to be treated with the exact same merit, the exact same weight. 
So don't think, well, if I, an eyewitness is somehow be, you know, better than DNA or that DNA is somehow better than an eyewitness. They're to be given the exact same weight in your considerations and deliberating. And deliberating. So I just want you to see those categories matter, okay? That's the first thing you need to understand too. We often come into cases with presuppositions and those presuppositions cloud the way we see the evidence and how we think about the evidence. So that's something you gotta be careful about. You can't be a know-it-all in crime scenes. I've done that before. I've been in a place where, you know, to be honest, most of the time when a woman who's married is murdered, it's usually her husband, okay? I mean, I hate to say that, but if you're playing the odds, that's the first person you're going to investigate. But if you were like committed to that, if you thought, well, look, they're, they're, they're arguing for the last year, this is going to be her husband, and you never looked at anybody else, you might miss the real suspect. You cannot presume it's her husband, but he's definitely a candidate for investigation. Well, something similar happens here when you're talking about the case for Christianity. If I presume up front that all space-time matter, physics, and chemistry can, just, can, can account for everything, even though I'll be honest, I wrote another book called God's Crime Scene. But you, that there's you cannot get what we have in the universe from just space, time, uh, you know, uh, matter, physics, physics, and chemistry. You can't. But if you presume you can, then you'll stop your investigation short. Even when the investigation points to God and is best explained by God, you'll rule him out because you've made a, a presupposition we call philosophical naturalism. That we all hold presuppositions. Everyone does. People who believe, people who don't believe. I don't want the believer to hold a presupposition either. Good detectives walk into crime scenes with all the options still on the table, and they don't think they know the answer before they begin. If they do, they won't even look for certain forms of evidence because they think they already know. So that's why I say those two things are, they sound simple, but they're important skills to remember. Okay, so review the two for us again. Number one, understand the types of evidence. There's there's only two types of evidence. You say direct evidence, indirect evidence. They're, they're both the same level of quality of evidence. Number two, you got to keep all options open. Keep an open mind. Don't think you know the outcome before you even begin to investigate. Yes. Uh, you got a few more tips for, yeah, for our aspiring you, detectives. Gonna... We got to give them badges by the end of the show, by the way. Right, so we got to make right. sure we we train them in everything they need. Well, I'm going to give you two more, and they two may more. seem like they're 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 okay. relatively benign, but they're not. One is in a, a process of thinking, a way we think called abductive reasoning. Now, abductive, abductive reasoning is abductive reasoning. reasoning, and the reason why this is, I use this form of of thinking, is because we all do it all the time. Abductive reasoning simply takes a look at two lists: a list of all the evidence and then a list of all the explanations. Those two lists that begin with an E, evidence and explanations, and you try to figure out which explanation for the evidence makes the most sense given the evidence you have. In other words, a buddy tells you that uh, he went out yesterday to get uh, chips at the local uh, gas station, um, and but you've got some evidence to consider. He, well, he said that, okay, but in, there happens to be an empty chips uh, bag in his car, and his car's on full, so maybe he did go to the gas station and fill up his tank, and there's chips there. And then you find a receipt that has the gas. So look, what are you doing? You're collecting the evidence. Now, there's other explanations. He could be lying about it. He could have brought the chips from home. Well, So you can write down all the ways to explain the evidence and then all of the evidences, and then you eliminate those explanations that don't best fit the evidence. And eventually you'll come to the proper inference from evidence. So this process of comparing evidence to explanations, 
We ask jurors to do this on every criminal case, and we do this every day when we're talking to our friends. You know, our parents did it to us when we come home late and offer some lame explanation. So it's just, it's a very natural way to, to process evidence in your mind. And why does that matter? Well, for me, it mattered because when I was first looking at the evidence for the resurrection, I could imagine a number of ways of explaining the basic storyline. Okay, this guy is killed on a cross, he's buried in a tomb, and he's missing the next day. Hmm. He, well, number one, maybe he wasn't dead. Maybe he was just badly injured, but he wasn't really killed, so he could get back out of the tomb. Maybe somebody stole the body out of the tomb. Maybe people lied and said they saw him afterwards, but he wasn't really. Maybe they imagined seeing. Do you see how I could make a number of ways? There's a number of ways I could explain the minimal evidence that's offered by history. Of course, one of the explanations is he rose from the grave. So I simply made a list of all the explanations and then look at all the evidences and I started crossing out the explanations that had fatal flaws. I actually think, and that's one of the chapters in the book, that every of these, all these naturalistic explanations I held for years as an atheist, don't, they all have fatal flaws. Now, you could argue that the, the Christian explanation also has a fatal flaw. It requires a resurrection and I don't believe in resurrections. Well, hold on. We already talked about you can't make assumptions. Don't presume that everything in the universe can be explained with space, time, matter, physics, and chemistry. And that's why I wrote a whole other book on that. Number two, we talked about the fact that 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 you, your presuppositions often will color. Look, we're we're looking at it this way. We're examining the question: Is it ever reasonable that a man might rise from the grave? That's that's how we have to look at that question. Well, you can't off by, start off by saying, "Well, no, I don't believe in resurrections." But no, no, that's the question under consideration. You can't start off with the answer in your pocket. You have to be open-handed. And if you'll do that and use that process of abductive reasoning, that's what I tried to do in the book, you'll see that the best explanation for the evidence of the resurrection is that it occurred the way the gospel authors actually said it did. So that's another trick, you know, not a trick, but a little tool that we all use, abductive reasoning. That's why we collect so much evidence, and then we offer all these different potential suspects. We're trying to figure out which meets the evidence best. The last thing, when you are assessing eyewitness reliability, eyewitness accounts, it's pretty straightforward. There's four things we do. They come out of the California jury instructions. They're the same kinds of jury instructions that are in every state in the land. And what we do is we ask these four questions. And if they pass, the, the witnesses pass, we consider them reliable. As a matter of fact, if they pass, the judge instructs you to consider them reliable. And here they are. One, were they really there to see what they saw? Said they saw. Maybe they're lying about it. But were they really there? If you can put them someplace else at the time of the murder, they're not a witness. Two, can they be corroborated by something? Even though we know the corroboration is not going to be a video camera if it's a 1980 case, it's not going to be a video if it's a, a, if it's happening in Jerusalem in the first century. There's sometimes you have, your corroboration comes from all kinds of little things. I call it touch point corroboration. I'm looking for little things that will bite off the edges of the story and corroborate them. That's what we do in every criminal. For example, if I had a guy who runs into a bank and does a bank robbery and jumps the counter and the witness says, yeah, he ran in right there, he jumped the counter right there, then he threatened the teller and yelled at her and held a gun at her. Okay, well, I'm, I expect then there should be a palm print on that counter where he jumped it. 
And I can go over there and fingerprint it. Yep, sure enough, there's a palm print that matches the suspect. But that palm print doesn't tell us anything about what he said to her, what he was wearing, if he had a gun. It's touch point corroboration. It gives us a small percentage of the eyewitness account. And that's really all you can expect from corroborative evidence. Here's number three. Remember we talked about, were they really there? Is there any corroborative evidence? Three, did they change their story over time or have they been consistent? Four, do they have a reason to lie to me? Some motive for personal gain that would cause them to lie to me. I simply looked at the gospel authors under those four criteria. And I came to the conclusion, based on the evidence, that they were written early enough to have been written by people who could have seen this. By the way, if you want to lie about Jesus, just wait till everyone who knows the truth is dead. Then you can say anything you want. But if you're writing it in the first century, early enough when people who were there, who knew the truth, could fact check it, you're taking a gamble. Two, you can corroborate it. And I've given a number of different ways of corroborating it in the book. Three, has it changed over time? And I found a way to change that. We tested that. And then finally, four, well, what is their motivation to lie? And we also talk about that. So the four criteria, I lay that out in the first uh, 10 chapters so that in the next four chapters of that book, I'm going to test the eyewitness accounts, and I'll show you why I think they're reliable. Jim, thanks so much for giving us the just the teaser for how to help think like a detective. I don't know. I feel like I'm equipped, but I'm not quite ready to get the badge. So here's what I'm wondering if we could do. Would you be able to come back and join us next week and help apply those four uh, principles of thinking like a detective to actually how that helps us believe the Bible to be credible, reliable, and trustworthy accounts of Jesus? Absolutely. Let's do it. All right. Well, we'll guys, come back next week I'm with Jay Warner Wallace, the author of Cold Case Christianity. He's been teaching us how to think like a detective today. And when we come back next week, he's going to help apply this thinking uh, to the Bible so we can test the Bible, examine the Bible together and see uh, whether it holds up to these uh, criteria that he's taught us today. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.